So if there's anybody on LinkedIn who I see on a, well, I was going to say daily basis, but it's not daily basis. It's kind of like multiple, multiple, multiple times a day, evangelizing, um, rebelling, uh, having an opinion, uh, really making a noise of themselves on the topic of sustainability. It's Emma Burlow, and we're joined today by Emma herself. Now, this is a second episode, I think, because we were talking just before we uh, kind of went live on this one about when was the last time we spoke? We talked about circular economy. That was the, uh, the key topic we spoke about. We reckon it was about two and a half years ago. So a lot has happened in the meantime and i want everybody to hear the state of sustainability according to emma because this is somebody who really knows what is going on because i think for lots of us and we're very keen to hear what you think about this one emma, but i think for lots of us there is just so much we could look at so much we could be paying attention to but it's almost got to be too much and if we don't have sustainability as a focus of our kind of professional life it's almost a case of do we kind of look the other way do, do you do you see that a lot do you see people need to be kind of held by the hand through this stuff because it's chaotic isn't it yeah yeah thanks for the introduction neil i'm glad you put the word rebel in there i think as i'm getting a bit older i'm feeling a bit more rebellious and you know frankly time's running out so um so yeah maybe, maybe that's the trend um but yeah do i think think things are quite chaotic yes i think they are i mean people's lives are chaotic enough um without layering all this on so um you know i've heard it said that climate change is a kind of amplifier to everything that's going on in our lives anyway so um you know across the living crisis or covid or um you know food prices or energy or war in ukraine you know climate change um, and sustainability more broadly is just a layer on top of all that so it can seem really chaotic for people and I think the most common thing that people ask me or, or say to me is that is that they, they're bothered about it, they're concerned. I certainly don't have that fear anymore, but they don't know where to start. Um, so I try to be quite uh, practical and pragmatic in, in what I talk about um, so that people feel that they can cut through some of that. Um, so, yeah, it definitely is a confusing place. Last time we spoke, and as I say, it was you know, a good couple of years ago now, the, the concept of circular economy, obviously it wasn't a brand new thing, but I think for, for masses, and I would put myself into that category, it was something quite new and shiny and I guess kind of exciting because it, it kind of made sense. I think for, for lots of people professionally and personally, the vast majority of this sustainability debate, you know, if it's playing back against the ESGs, you know, and all these kind of big highfalutin political things, it kind of doesn't really make sense on the ground. Whereas mm. something like circular business or circular economy, it kind of did because it was all about reusing, repurposing, recycling, re-everything, really. Do, do, do you think it's been the terminology that's been the hard bit? Or is there something more kind of fundamental at the kind of the heart of all this? Yeah, really good question. You know, I mean, circular economy is a really, you know, let's face it, it's a made-up term. You know, someone coined the phrase. Um, we don't talk about the linear economy, so why would we talk about the circular economy? You know, we might talk about stack it high, sell it cheap. You know, we we know that's how businesses operate. We talk about fast fashion. So there are other terms that people are more familiar with, but when you talk about something that's a linear or a circular economy. It's really confusing for people. I think 
anything past recycling, which is a very you know familiar term for everybody, becomes a bit alien. And and why would that be relevant to me? So yeah, it is um, it is really tricky. Although I would say familiarity, not maybe not with the term circular economy, but familiarity with the different business models is has really gone through the roof. So things like repair, sharing economy, you know, with little void scooters that people scoot around Bristol on, um, being able to, you know, borrow something rather than um, buy it. That became really big during COVID, you know, community library of things, that sort of thing. Oh, sorry, there's the dog. <laughs> um, so yeah, it has become much more, much more commonplace, I think. Um, saying that, I don't think people are ready to kind of uh, understand fully what it means to them, certainly not in their business, because they're very much usually on a path, um, to, you know, to how they how they make revenue. Um, so I, I do use quite a lot of examples. Or I try to promote good practice. Um, companies like Ikea or, um, um, you know, even Airbnb say to people, look, this is a sharing model. This isn't about owning second homes. This isn't about sharing other people's homes or ikea uh, doing loads of work on remanufacturing and reuse and repair so i try and use those sort of examples and people go oh i hadn't really i wouldn't have thought that was circular economy but it is mm, and there's been obviously the really really bullish kind of recent examples like patagonia saying you know our only investor or our own shareholder or is is, mm. is the planet i mean you know obviously that's one end of a, a very very broad of kind of organizations and people with attitudes as to how important this is when, when you say your only shareholder is the planet i mean it clearly steers and guides everything i mean if somebody is kind of realizing that at a, at a household level yeah they can do more and they are starting to do more but where was that kind of transition over into, into a business sense because mm. you know I'm, I'm guessing you're still seeing people who are either in denial or who are just so say too busy to to do this stuff so if, if you're a, a a sponsor of good things within an organization and you you sort of make a big yeah. difference in your business how, how are people like that actually kind of making inroads mm -hmm. now because i'm guessing it has become a little easier to do that recently it's so it's so difficult but i am seeing quite a lot of um really interesting things and i'll give you an example from the carbon literacy work I do. So talking to uh, training businesses in carbon literacy, um, and we can talk a bit more about what that is, but essentially what I've seen is when you, when you get a minimum number of people in a business up to a level, so when you raise awareness up to a point, and it's a sort of, it's quite a low critical mass really, I'd say kind of 30%, once you get to the one in three people who have, who, who have um, changed their mindset in some way, you, you see this real groundswell um, and then, you know, they're not the only person in the meeting bringing it up. They're not the only person talking about it in lunch queue. You know, and these ideas that have sat on the shelf for literally years. I mean, you know, I've been in this field 25 years and I'm seeing things coming around now that, that I saw 20 or 30 years ago. Um, because there's now a groundswell of people who get it, you get that momentum um, and I'm, I'm certainly seeing that. And it's given me real fresh hope, actually, because it has been a bit of a case of ambassador, activist, waving the flag, you know, come on, get this going. And then you're really reliant on the MD or CEO get, getting it and being, you know, the 
the equivalent of um, uh, of Patagonia, you know, changing things from the top. But that doesn't happen very often. But um, yeah, this sort of it's almost like peer pressure, I guess. Once you get people upskilled, and that's where I'm focusing a lot of my time now, is trying to educate employees, senior leaders, and basically then you get both. You get top down and bottom up. Um, yeah, so it's uh, you don't have to be that lone ranger anymore. <laughs> mm, that's an interesting one in three, and that's uh, mm. that's an achievable target, isn't it? Really, yeah, I think you know, particularly in a small to medium-sized business, you could rally the troops, so to speak, to kind of get that. So, so when you talk about carbon literacy, this is the kind of carbon mm. literacy trust training. Yeah. Uh, we had um, Corbell from Carbon Literacy Trust actually on a previous episode a few months back. Oh. Right, and he was evangelizing, yeah. you know, sort of, you know, the, the, the virtues of this. And I think, you know, one of the things that really convinced me to do that training, and I, I did this, yeah. completed this um, six, seven weeks ago now. Okay. Um, and it fascinated. I, I want to kind of ask your view on this. But for me, it was a fascinating journey, thinking mm. I know a little bit about being carbon literate. I found I was only scratching the surface and that, yeah. that you can go so deep, but it is so accessible. Yeah. I mean, it's this accessibility and it's kind of, it's almost sort of taken this time and we talk about all the years that you've been sort of in mm-hmm. the industry. It's kind of always needed to take that time to get to a point now where it's just a tiny little footstep forward and you're into it. You can make it happen. Whereas I guess back in the day, you were kind of almost talking in a in a vacuum. You know, nobody's yeah. taking it seriously. That must feel very different now. It really does, Neil. It really does feel different. And it's great to be able to reflect on, you know, when I first started my career, I'd be asked to do, uh, presentations that would, were literally called "Why bother?" You know, why why should we do sustainability? Why is it important to us? Can you tell us all the reasons why it's important to our business? Right? So that I, that was my bread and butter in the late nineties and the noughties, and um, people were very compliance focused, and it was you know all of this was seen as a um, almost like a philanthropic thing to do. You know, morally, morally, we, we companies would do it, even though you would you would you know, tell them endlessly that all the cost savings they can make and, you know, we're in the era of lean manufacturing and energy efficiency and that sort of was okay, but that sat with the factory manager and and only them or the office manager or whatever. Um, So I am seeing complete change now. And I think, you know, the impact of things like Blue Planet, you know, that's changed consumers' views, particularly of plastic, but also the the work that Sir David's done on uh, climate, it's just in it's in people's living rooms now. Um, you know, if you if you listen to Radio Four, you'll hear all sorts of programs about climate. You, you know, the kids are seeing stuff. Um, so it's it's much more in the mainstream uh, than it was. And obviously, we as humans go to work. Um, so there's this crossover. Um, the other thing I think I would say is not only has awareness gone up, and that's great. But accessibility. So you said, you know, you, you can get so much more information on this now, not just through LinkedIn, but through all social media. You can hardly avoid it, actually. Um, so, yeah, it's become that point where it's a kind of world's worst kept secret. You know, everyone wants to talk about it. But the, 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 the challenge that people have got is being able to orientate themselves with all this noise. So, you know, should I be worried about plastic? Is it straws? Is it? Is it packaging? Like, is that better 
uh, in a plastic packaging or a paper. You know, there's all these endless debates about things which are frankly just kind of noisy when really the big problem we've got is fundamentally climate change is fueled by burning of fossil fuels, you know, whatever you're going to do with it. Um, so, the, so the carbon literacy course does reorientate people a bit from some of the distracting issues of the day, which are important in their own right, um, to the big issues of the day, which are, you know, the stuff, the black stuff we burn around the planet um, and how much of it we use on an annual basis. Um, so, yeah, I love doing it. And, and I've pivoted a bit in my work to do more of that because I see such a big impact from it. And it feels much more impactful than, um, than, than, than just doing a consultancy report that might sit on the shelf, you know, or might help two or three people in the team. It's, like I say, this groundswell you see. Um, I think it's really important. We forgot how to, we've forgotten how to learn as a society, you know, together. Um, so, so Carbon Literacy Project focuses a lot on peer-to-peer -peer learning. So, you know, the stuff you just learn off your family and your mates and your colleagues. So, yeah, it's a great mm. approach. Did, did you see this as kind of a, almost an entry level? I mean, I, I'm finding it sort of quite interesting. I'm putting together some some courses and, and programs um, sort of at the moment with um, Cambridge Marketing College. And, and what we're looking at is kind of where to sort of position the whole carbon literacy mm. kind of story, I guess. And did you see this as a kind of an entry level sort of introductory and I, I'm not saying that in any kind of sort of negative yeah. way because I think for lots of people they, they need to understand what is the point of entry here you know I'm yeah. interested personally but I don't really know how to introduce it to my my business uh, I might not be the MD so I might be in a marketing yeah. role or operations role I just need to be able to get this into the business to, to me something like carbon literacy is, is a very kind of user-friendly yeah. sort of entry point I see it I mean do, do you see it different or is, it, is that sort of no, something absolutely. you're seeing with your customers? Yeah, absolutely entry level. It's not to say that all of my clients are coming at it from entry level. I mean, some of them are on sustainability teams. Some of them are, you know, in charge of writing a net zero plan. Um, uh, so I have to up my game on those days. But but it's really rare for people to stop and think for any, about anything for, for several hours. Really rare. You know, most people in the workplace, although they get a bit of CPD every now and then, they don't get a lot of time to think through a topic. You know, if they get training, it might be on a product or whatever. But so I think it's a sh it's almost a shock for people to have to stop and think about this for, um, you know, six, seven hours the length of the course. I do my courses in two batches, uh, two more, two sessions, so that people get a bit of reflection in the middle. Um, but um, yeah, I, I think it needs to be, well, the idea that it's that length of training gives time for the pennies to drop and time for people to sort of absorb some of it. Um, so I suppose it is entry level, but it's a significant amount of time. So it's not, you know, it's not 40 minutes like entry level. You might think, oh, I can just listen to this in my lunchtime. But I think we know that those things kind of wash over people, you know, the e-learning, you do it in a lunchtime and it's gone. Whereas this is much more about giving people chance to um, reflect, you know, share their views on things. So we talk about climate protest, we talk about diet and food and flying and driving and all the sort of hot potato topics. But it gives them chance to ask those 
um, stupid questions that they're like, well, I never, I never talk about this because I don't want to get get it wrong. No, so it removes that barrier really of, um, yeah, not wanting to talk about it. Once they can talk about it, we can all learn together. You know. mm, it's that collaboration piece, isn't it? Once yeah. it is in a conversation, it's it's never going to stop. I mean, it's it's almost like Pandora's box, isn't it? Once you've opened it, you can't shut the box because you can't unknow what you suddenly know. And I've said that to people, uh, you can't unsee it now. You will have these mm. glasses on forever. You'll see it. Um, and so to go back to your question about is this an entry level, it, it, it doesn't need to be entry level because actually everyone is on a continuum, you know, from someone who's literally never thought about it. And I've had people training said, look, I've just never thought about this, fine. All the way to, yeah, I'm writing a net zero plan, but you know what, this has given me time to actually sit back and think about what's important because I've had my head full of data for, you know, 18 months. Um, and it, quite often those people then find a pivot and they say, well, actually, I think we should be pointing more towards here because, you know, there's a blind spot or, or something they hadn't thought about. So, um, so yeah, I, I find it great. It's sort of lots of, like you say, lots of points where you could, you could drop in and out. And, and we, we make bespoke courses for uh, different, you know, organisations that have got different levels of need and, and things. So um, you can adapt. You can adapt the level of learning to your audience fairly easily. Mm. And it's almost self. Yeah, kind of self-leveling, isn't it? Because yeah. you know, with the the lovely thing at the end of it, which I kind of you know spent some very very interesting you talk about reflection time very mm. interesting self-reflection time and i never make enough time for me and i should do and i did for this and it was really interesting because for those people who listening to this or watching this who, who are not aware yet of the uh, carbon literacy um, sort of process here mm. um, there is a pledge that you make mm. as an individual going through this uh, this particular training and it requires you to really do a deep dive into actually what's important. What what are mm -hmm. you, what's your circle of influence? What are you mm -hmm. valuing, and what would make the biggest difference if you were to change something? Um, you know, Emma, you'll you'll know this far better than me. But it was things like changing diet. So going to mm -hmm. maybe a predominantly, if not completely, plant based diet, for example. Um, it was what kind of transportation do you use, etc., etc., etc. So it was very personal. Do you, do you think this is now the time to take this stuff personally? Because otherwise, you can almost kind of just just kind of say, "Oh, it's not really me. It doesn't really affect me. I'm fine." Is, is this the time to really take ownership? It feels like it. Yeah, and that's a really good point because I start with my my courses are aimed at business. Lots of other people train, you know, Joe Public and community groups and parish councils and that sort of thing. I focus on training businesses, but you know, I train humans within a business. You know, I don't train the business because that entity doesn't exist. It, you know, it's the people within that business. So for me, I do a mix of um, getting people to understand their personal carbon footprints. That helps them understand what a footprint is, um, all their personal choices. But I also um, translate that into kind of the workplace for them. So the choices they make around travel for work, the choices they make around uh, food for work, you know, ordering food in, using different venues, those sorts of things. And then really, really big um, opportunities, as you mentioned, about their influence on other people. So the reason, one of the reasons I work with businesses is because their sphere of influence is so huge. 
you know, far much, far bigger than, say, me training somebody in the village who may be retired, he's got time to go to the training. But a business, they've got supply chain, they've got the employees themselves, which could be hundreds of people, all the policies that revolve, that drive the business, the culture of the business. They've got customers, they've got their meat, their the marketing, their media. And then that's before you get to all the other stakeholders. They might be on industry groups. They might be even lobbying government for different things. And so for me, that's so exciting how to take what is really, a, uh, um, a, like you say, a germ of information. It's not, you know, they have not done a degree in climate science. But what can they do with that? that level of information. Um, and I, I, I say in my course that your, um, you know, your influence is your superpower, basically. Because the one thing people say to me is, well, I'm just me, I can't make a difference. And, you know, if I turn my light bulbs off, what, what, you know, what difference is that going to make if I cycle to work? But what you can do if you were to translate that into a work setting and you change the travel policy at work that encourages 20 people to cycle, you know, suddenly your action is massive. Um, so that's what I do. I spend a lot of time trying to convert people from, well, not convert, trying to get people to think more ambitiously about the influence they can have on other people. Um, and again, I said, it doesn't mean you have to be the big activator and ambassador. I think there's a really famous video of a, a person dancing in a field. I don't know if you've ever seen it, Neil. And there's, there's one chap dancing on his own and he's really going for it, you know, and he's on his own and everyone's looking at him a bit weird. Uh, dancing, dancing, dancing. And then after a few minutes, it does take a while, someone else joins him and dances in the field. And then there's just two people. And then someone, a third person joins them. And this is what I mean about critical mass. Once the third person joined them, everyone joined them. And so, you know, that lone ranger who may have been going on about the sustainability policy for 10 years, once you join that person. So you can you can have a lot of power by just being a supporter um, and getting behind things. Um, so yeah, and I, I love that feeling because it's, um, I can see in the big companies I'm working with the, the impact that that's having. Um, a very good friend of mine uses the, and, and not quite in this positive sense, but uses the word sheeple. You know, we're all just sheeple. We all follow yeah. what the politicians yeah. tell us, what media tells us, what our friends do. Oh, we're social animals Everyone's and I, but, but actually, this is a really positive yeah, use of is. sheeple, isn't it? Because I'm reading it, this. Um, I've got this yeah. on my desk at the moment. I don't know if you've read this, Tribes. So by uh, Seth Godwin. We are, you know, we're social animals. We're, we're, we're tribes. We, we, we stick to our social groups. We don't like to be out of the norm. You know, we like to, um, yeah, we live within social norms. So just as, you know, sharing things becomes a social norm, um, you know, living a low carbon lifestyle and a plant-based diet is becoming a social norm. So it is about shifting, it's a cultural shift. Um, so yeah, I, I, I really love that. I think that's really powerful. Um, so that's what I I'm yeah, I'm fascinated by this whole kind of, I guess, societal communication thing. Mm. It is, 
you know, because we all, I say we all, no, it is we all. We all are influenced by influencers. I'm not talking yeah. necessarily about the, the kind of yeah. big celebrity influencers who've got like 100 million, you know, followers, etc. But we all have influencers. So people who influence us, right. parents, it could be our manager, it could be, you know, somebody in our special interest group or our sport that we do or whatever. It, it, but it almost means then, just kind of taking this to the nth degree, I'm kind of philosophizing here, but it's almost that we can all be micro-influencers in the oh, same 100%. Yeah. I had a lady on my course this morning, and she said quite a lot of times through the course um, that, you know, she lived in rented accommodation, she didn't have any children, she has quite a junior role in the business. So she was, feeling, she was struggling to feel like she could make a difference. She said... You know, we don't spend a lot of money. You know, she didn't. They weren't a high-income household, so it wasn't like she had this massive thing to go at. You know, big high consumption that she could somehow reduce. So she, she said, "I feel like I'm really frugal, and you know, I'm really struggling with this." And then towards the end of the course, she said, we "We're talking about the pledges," and she said, "You know what I'm going to do?" So I'm going to talk to my mum, who um, has got a you know more higher consumption than me. And she said, "And my mum talks to everyone." She said. And she said, so right, if I can convince my mum, then she will tell everybody. And she said, the whole family and all her friends are, I know. And I thought, how amazing. And I said to her, that is just brilliant because this completely gets us away from this. Well, I'm only tiny. I can't do anything. And she's, and I said, look, it might take you six months or a year. And it doesn't matter because if you change one person's viewpoint and they change another one, you get this snowball effect and, you, and all you've done is give it a little push, um, uh, which is completely different to the, the, the scary logic of we have to train all these people. You know, I sometimes wake up and think, well, how am I going to do this? But it's not, it's a domino. It's a domino effect. Um, okay. That sixth person doesn't have the knowledge of the first, but they're tuned into it when they weren't maybe before. Um, and we're receiving messages all the time, aren't we? But we just blank out the, most of them. But once you sort of tuned into them, oh, so-and-so said, and it becomes part of your normal conversation. Um, yeah, so I, I do, I trust in that in terms of, you know, um, connecting groups of people and before you know it. Um, I mean, look at COVID, you know, we okay, we were fed bits of information, but lots of the compliance around COVID was was social um you know how, how people operated it was kind of a trust thing wasn't it and you didn't do certain things because you didn't want to affect other people and we just all learned that as a social uh you know um or our neighbors and um you know people at work so behavior change is fascinating in terms of how you get people to do things um yeah it's not as hard as it looks yeah. I was just going to say it, it, it's so different. This conversation that we're having now is so, so different to just two and a half years ago when yeah, we were speaking on the same kind of topic, but the different threads, the different kind of mindset, the kind of mm. the different feel that it's got now. It, it is so encouraging, isn't it? I think in lots of ways, I was kind of a, maybe a little disillusioned. I, I stuck with it because it's the kind of stoic character I am. I'm never going to let this thing go. But I think a lot for lots of people, 
it could very easily have been, oh, it's just too hard to do. I'm just going to carry on with my day job. But it just kind of felt the right thing to do. Do you, do you think a lot of people are now kind of understanding that this is the right thing to do? But it took things like, you know, the wildfires down in the southeast of England, you know, in the summer to kind of be that trigger. Or it took something else that was maybe a little bit more local to people to sort of think, oh, right, now I've got to do it. I've heard this for some time, but now is the time. Because there needs to be a sense of kind of urgency with this, doesn't there? Mm -hmm. I mean, you must see things happening at a faster rate now than they probably were, say, five, ten years ago. Oh, terrifying, yeah. I think, you know, they say a little knowledge is dangerous, you know. And we've got such access now to the knowledge, so we know about things. So it is... It is a more anxiety-inducing space to be in because you know you can see all this stuff happening all around the world, whereas maybe 20 years ago we'd have just seen what was on the news and that was it. You know, um, <laughs> I think people are still split into a couple of camps. I think a lot more people have engaged, and there's been some articles recently about you know levels of support for even you know, things like climate protests and things like that are, are, are unprecedentedly high. Is that the word? Or at high levels. People may not agree always with the um, actions that are taken, but fundamentally, the majority of people now agree that we have to do something and they kind of sympathise with with protesters, whereas that never would have been the case. I mean, that would have been probably 10% of people 10 years ago. Um, so there's a real sea change in that respect. I think COVID had a bit to do with it because people came home and they remembered what was important to them and they stopped travelling so much. And they went, oh, really like nature, really like the garden, you know, love my family. And so those things, you know, um, when, when you're faced with a threat like climate change, you can kind of reflect on, 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 on your family and your, the great outdoors. And you think, oh, actually, I, this matters to me now. Whereas I think when you're very, um, you know, if you're working all hours and you're working in a, in a big city, it's quite difficult, I think, to connect the two um yeah so i do see a difference in people that definitely spend more time in nature than those who who don't actually it's quite interesting mm, so yeah everyone's in a different, kind of, different part of the journey now it feels like it needs to come from different lots of different directions though doesn't yeah. it i mean just just going back to the the whole plant-based food kind of example it, it i mean obviously for, for a lot of people it's been well a lot a lot but some people it's been you know veganism has been something that they've always had and they've always grown up with but definitely a, a minority and yet yeah. when you have vegan football teams so forest green rovers for example you know evangelizing you know a completely vegan football club who play on a vegan pitch as well which if you haven't read about <laughs> that you should go read about yeah. that fascinating um all the way through through to obviously all the main supermarkets now giving you know aisle upon aisle of plant-based yeah, foods plant you know we're, we're told from carbon literacy you know that you know eating a plant-based diet is a good thing and then it becomes a thing that you know chefs when you go out for dinner they've actually made an effort rather than it being all yeah. veggie lasagna is the only option on the menu suddenly it becomes no look there's some vegan options as well as vegetarian options it's now a thing yeah. do, do, do you feel that it these kinds of topics which obviously all make a little contribution we're talking little steps mm. here do you feel that each one needs to be you know to come at you as a human being from multiple directions before it's taken seriously because that's kind of how it looks isn't it with example right. like that 
Oh yeah, definitely. And what do they say? The seven in marketing um, that you have to see something seven times before you'll buy it or something. There's this, you know, the whole way that marketing works is to is to subliminally, if you like, or, or put things in front of people. Okay, so you you might hear something on the radio, an advert, but you don't really fully take it in. But you might drive past a billboard that talks about, oh right, yeah, I'm not. And then you don't think anything of it. But then you might be, you know, on uh, Facebook or something later, and something pops up, and it's exactly the same in real life. I mean, that's how we make buying decisions. We don't randomly stumble across a brand. You know, we kind of go, oh, I've heard, of, oh yeah, oh and then, oh and then, you know. Sue said she bought this from this place. Oh, I'll look on that website. You know, so you've had four, you've seen the, heard the radio, you've seen the billboard, you've looked at Facebook, an advert popped up, and then Sue said she's bought it, and suddenly you're in, you know. But one of those things wouldn't have been enough necessarily for you to make that buying decision. So I think you're absolutely right. And one of the lovely things about Carbon Literacy is we do a lot of time, you know, give people a lot of time to tell us their stories. So you've always, in a group of 10 or 12, you always have at least one vegetarian, sometimes a vegan, maybe two or three, or just a law of averages. Um, and so then you, you might have other people who say, well, actually, I'm sort of trying to reduce my meat intake. Um, so you, you can get those people and sort of how was it for you? Um, and I've had people say to me, oh, I was really surprised that we've got vegans working for us, as if it's like an alien thing. <laughs> You know, people just, it just needs normalised. Um, so once you start seeing it here and there and, yeah, someone in your workplace brings in a vegan chocolate cake or something, yeah, it just takes away that kind of weirdness. Um, but, I mean, it's always been the same for me because even with, I think when we spoke last, I talked about my circular economy 100, which is still going, but a bit slow at the moment. That's about talking about mainstream things that we, businesses and brands we buy every day that we've just never thought about being circular. Okay, so, you know, everything from reusing Lego to renting Rub Doctor to do your carpets on the weekend to getting your shoes healed at Timpsons. You know, they're all circular and they're all lower carbon than, than the alternative. So it's all out there. You've just got to turn people's heads towards it. So when it comes to turning those heads, mm. I guess a lot of people, well, I know a lot of people listening to this are communicators. They might be in marketing or sales or entrepreneurs or small business owners. And I know because that's a lot of the people who listen to this particular podcast. Um, if, if they're listening to this and they're thinking, okay, some of this stuff sounds really interesting I need to kind of align, not necessarily internally my activities, mm. but I need to align my branding and my messages with some of these key themes because mm. what I do would relate to some of these stories, be it mm. plant-based or secular economy mm. or whatever. Without kind of going down the greenwashing route, do you see kind of a method or methodology where people can kind of yeah, begin to communicate their relevance in some of these topics, some of these stories. Because it, it feels like as a business, you kind of have to have an opinion on this stuff. Otherwise, you're just doing the old school kind of style of business operations. It feels like you need to be aligned with some of these topics. I mean, where, where would a business, I mean, say, say a small business, for example, not necessarily a startup, but a small business already operating, where, where would they begin to 
communicate their sustainability and how they're kind of doing stuff or aligning with particular topics? So, I mean, where, where do you begin with something like that yeah, at the moment? Great question. Um, and I think that is where a lot of people are at, to be honest. Um, the word that popped into my head as you were talking about that is, you know, was honesty. Honesty is the best place to start. So if you're just starting, you know, say we're just starting, you know, we don't know it all. Um, transparency is the other brilliant thing. You know, we want to learn from you, our customers, tell, tell us what's important to you. So that community, opening up the communication channels. I think the worst thing to do is to, um, or two things to do is to do nothing, is to just, or we don't know anything about it, so we're not going to say. Or equally to go, well, we don't know much about it, but how hard can it be? And, you know, sort of spray and pray in terms of greenwash. So, you know, we do get those polls. And in the middle, we get really authentic, honest and transparent businesses that say, wow, this is really interesting. We think this is important. You know, we're learning. Um, and you can just tell in their comms, it's just written um, authentically that, we don't know it all, but but hey, here's the top thing, three things that we think are important. We'd love to hear from you. I mean, that's where I'd start. I'd just get a team together in the company and I'd almost kind of brainwash or hotspot, you know, what is it you do? What's important? Are you in food? Are you in white goods? Whatever it is. Um, and then don't talk about something completely random. You know, talk about what's important to you as a business. You know, if you're a Hornish company, talk about transport. Don't talk about, you know, fish fingers or something random so greenwash is not only about i guess telling fibs but it's about not pointing at the right things as well um or, or distraction you know there's quite a lot of that about oh look at our brilliant packaging like, oh we seem to have missed the point there that there's the product that's the problem you know so being really honest being really communicative, I think, is a really good place to start. I mean, you can start with things like sustainable development goals, which are global goals, looking at 17 of the world's biggest problems and sort of say, you know, where do we align with these things? What's important to us? But I would always start with the company, the people who run the business, or, you know, all employees, if you can, and say exactly that. What's our purpose? Why are we here? What's important to us? I mean, they're big questions to ask, Neil. But, you know, then you get to people to really say, well, like, my grandkids are really important. You know, I really wish we were doing more about climate change. And um, you'd be really surprised the things that bubble up. You know, we're not used to taking our heart into work and telling people what we care about. But I think that's a really good place to start in terms of sustainability, because not only do you then hear what's important to people, but you'll then get their buy-in because... You've listened to them. You've basically said, yeah, it's important to us too. Um, yeah, you're, you're off the start line then. It's great. So a lot of communication. And I like the idea about this kind of asking questions, not necessarily just preaching and saying, oh, us. Yeah. Is, our, is our statement, is our position, and then kind of there's a full stop by actually putting a question mark at the end of the, the statement. You're actually inviting people to have an opinion back. And I guess this is what's called kind of scope two, so it, where it's looking beyond the walls of your own organisation and saying, well, actually, who do we deal with? You know, not just yeah, the customer, three. but who yeah. are our suppliers? Yeah, kind yeah. of moving out and out and out and, and sort of... Yeah. 
you know, let's look more you know deeply at you know every touch point within the organisation, and yeah, just kind of move move beyond our walls and and see if anybody's doing some good stuff. And it is yeah. a journey, isn't it? I think a lot of people oh, yeah. have been traditionally put off by the fact that oh well until it's all completely yeah. squeaky clean and completed we shouldn't talk about it yeah, whereas totally. a journey yeah, is now what people are looking never, for yeah it frankly it will never be completed so you'll be waiting a long time and you know with our net with net zero we're asking people to essentially make commitments to things they don't know how they're going to solve and so that is a you know uh, people find that quite difficult now they will obviously get data together and they'll have an idea of their footprint hopefully before they make any of those commitments but but other businesses they really won't know how they're going to meet those scope three um reductions but you know we're all in the same boat um we haven't got time to wait <laughs> so the best thing you can do is collaborate with others who in the same boat you know um and work it out between you so work it out with your key suppliers work it out with your customers um yeah there's a it, it's really powerful i think and um some brands are doing this really well you know communicating with their customers um working in their supply chains others i think the ones who are probably a bit further behind don't traditionally operate like that so they're finding that a bit of a challenge um yeah so we need to share and learn back to this tribal thing we can't we can't expect every business in the world to learn in its silo without talking to any competitors or anybody else because yeah we haven't got time <laughs> for that mm. yeah and i think it's so so important isn't it what you said earlier you know about this is kind of really really sort of focus on what it is you do so you know don't try and and again maybe this is where people kind of fall foul of the whole kind of greenwashing um sort of issue mm. is that they're trying to kind of almost outperform or outmarket themselves and they're trying to yeah. sort of say look look we, we are doing this we are achieving this where yeah. it's actually just a bit of honesty and yeah. nobody minds somebody who's still taking that first step because it's well well done you you know you've taken that yeah. first step mm. the rest of the industry isn't actually all they say they are but we don't believe them we'd much rather you say you've taken one step than 20 steps which aren't true yeah correct and that's why it's really difficult because it's almost now being used as a bargaining chip or a competitive edge when you know frankly so keeping the planet safe to hand it on to the next generations isn't about competing you know it's just about being a decent human and not trashing the place um but you know people have turned that into a, oh look at our packaging or look at our you know whatever um and you know it's it, it it does detract from the really hard work which is you know the nuts and bolts of it can be a bit of a grind you know trying to work out how you're going to uh, even operate in 10 years time in this changing landscape um but yeah it's a, it's a challenge for marketing departments because they want to talk about the good stuff um but they can't talk about it in the same way as maybe they could other aspects which you can kind of I guess hype up if you want to something's glossy and shiny but you can't do that with sustainability because immediately you fall foul of you know the eco claims code and, and rightfully so you shouldn't be um, making claims that are going to mislead people mm. so so are you saying that we shouldn't be we shouldn't be marketing with it 
because because obviously I'm a marketer, so therefore I'm always looking for the marketing mm. angle or spin on yeah. things. It's just in my DNA. I've programmed to do it this way. But yeah. so so are you say, are you saying that that isn't the right way of doing it? And all we should really be doing is almost documenting the pro uh, the the process rather or the progress in the process rather than sort of thinking, oh well, look, competitively we're doing it better than that competitor there. So therefore we'll use it as a marketing story. Are you, are you saying it needs to be just a little bit more pragmatic than that? Ah, so interesting because yes and no. I, I'm not. I'm definitely saying don't don't not market it. If you've got good stuff to talk about, you should talk about it. That's great. I think what where where it falls foul is where people are talking about things that are either insignificant and it's just like literally stuff to talk about, or completely miss the point. You know, so this sort of distraction thing. Um, or are making claims that they can't back up, you know, and that's some of the companies that have been um, through the courts recently, the Advertising Standards Agency in the, in the Eco Claims Code, is where they've made claims, let's say, I don't know, this um, product is planet-friendly, or this product is eco-friendly, or this is the most sustainable, you know, bar on the planet. And you go, oh, where's the evidence for that, you know? Um, always reminds me of Carlsberg, probably the best beer in the world. You know, it's hard to argue with that. Um, but they, but it's where they got, got carried away uh, and they've gone, oh, this is the most sustainable because someone told us in a report that it was, you know. Um, so, so that's where it's gone too far. But no, I, I think we should definitely mark it. And actually, I was just going to say, I saw some, uh, I read something uh, last week on LinkedIn about how actually companies are now sort of under-marketing things because they're scared of getting it wrong. So that's the other thing. Uh, so actually, you should talk about great stuff because how on earth are we going to make other people aware of it if we don't, you know, market it? But there are now a there is a feeling that people are underselling their credentials because they don't want to be kind of, I don't know, hauled over the coals because of it. So it's a fine line. We could do a whole other podcast on greenwash, Neil. It's a real, it's a really fine line. But I come back to I always say to clients on this honesty integrity transparency you can't go far wrong if you stick to those things and you test your messaging you go like how do we prove that like can we say that you know how do we know it's the most sustainable shampoo bar in the world like compared to what so if you do those tests you you should be fine but no absolutely you should uh, you should market the good to work you're doing whether it be social environmental um, you know, because it sends signals to other businesses as well. Mm. Yeah, I think that's, that's obviously key, and it is. I think I think it's something we're all on this journey. And again, I go back to our yeah. previous conversation. It feels different now. It feels like yeah. you know, as marketers or communicators, we've almost got permission now to do it. Back then, it felt like, oh, I don't know if I do it. You know, if I'm not a brand who's got a you know, huge heavyweight budget behind me to show. And to kind of do that testing, I really probably shouldn't go there. Whereas I think now mm. we, we've all got the opportunity to do it. And I think enough of us are doing enough stuff to kind of be able to filter out this, that, as you say, is not that relevant or important mm. and focus on where the real true value is coming through. Yeah. So I think that would be uh, interesting. Yeah, and focus on the fact that it's tough. It's not easy for everybody. You know, you know, easy being green is a kind of classic. No, it's not. It's not easy. It's going to be hard. But as a brand, you know, we're here to help. This is what we're doing. Uh, this is our sort of long-term goal. You know, all those things show show progress. Um, yeah, so there's a lot that you can do. And actually, I was going to say, 
whilst we're ever grateful to climate scientists for telling us, you know, on a daily basis, the situation we're in, um, I firmly believe that it'll be communicators that solve this problem. It's not a problem that, that, that you know, we understand the climate science, but we have a real issue with communicating it to people, you know, and I mean globally. So, um, yeah, we don't have a lack in that department anymore. Unfortunately, we know exactly the trajectory we're heading, but where we lack is, is, the, is enough communication. Um, and unfortunately, we're getting misinformation as well and, you know, all sorts of stuff, conspiracy theories and things all over the internet, which is only small, but it's noisy. So going back to your point about the role of marketers, I think they have a responsibility and their superpower is pushing out the right messages, you know, so that people don't fall foul of anything else. Um, consistent messages, you know. Um, so, yeah, there's plenty that can be done. Mm, where, where's this all going, Emma? Tell me, get, get out Emma's crystal ball and... Oh. I mean, two, we we did two and a half years ago. We, we had this conversation. It's now so so different. I, I want to go beyond the two and a half years, five, five years. Go forward five. Emma's crystal ball. What does it say? What's this all going to look like then? I'm not going to hold you to it, but I, I'm just curious as to what you think we'll achieve by that point. Where we'll be 27. Well, we'll be well on our way towards 2030, which is when we're supposed to have halved our emissions. And so I talk to people about that on a personal level, on a business level, on a government level. I mean, that's the government's um, commitment is to halve our emissions. Now, a lot of that will come through changes to the national grid because they are all over it. You know, thankfully, they're really on a good trajectory. But there's other things like, you know, will we have shifted to electric vehicles? Um, will we still be, you know, building houses in the same way as we are and powering our hotel, uh, hospitals and schools and things? Probably not. You know, by then, quite a lot will have shifted, I think, because these these things, these transformations go on this uh, this curve. You know, you have this low, long adoption, the early adopters, and then things just ramp up. And so I think by 27, we'll be starting on that up that ramp up curve. So I know it seems like a while, five years, but, you know, you think about five years ago, things were quite different. Lots happened in five years. So, yeah, I would expect things like solar panels on people's houses to be the norm, not, not unusual. Uh, EVs to be pretty much the norm. Maybe not for everybody who can afford them, but for, you know, professional people or others. So, yeah, I think it's going to be quite different. I don't think that's probably the case in every country. I think others, again, are on a different part of the journey. Um, but I think certainly in the UK and Europe, uh, well, I'm going to say, fingers crossed, if we carry on a, on, a, on the positive trajectory that we're on, we will see quite a big change in five years. Definitely. So there we there we have it. Emma's view of five years time, but knowing what you can do today. And yes, you can make a difference. So if you're still listening to this, you are an influencer, whether you like it or not. So gather your sheeple around you and, uh, you know, just lead by good example. Be a wholesome person professionally and personally and watch others follow in your wake. It seems that that is the way. So, Emma, I think well, someone uh, else said to me, you know, what else route. would you do? <laughs> And there it is. Yeah. What other choices have we got? What else is there to do? We've got to do it right. Exactly. We've got to do it right. We're only going to get one shot.
We are indeed. So thank you again for your time, um, Emma. No, that was really fascinating. Also, thank you. Yeah, really, really good. So I will put um, contact details in the description below so that if you wish to carry on this debate with her, you can do so. And also right. for carbon literacy training, because, uh, yeah, you will want some of that. So contact me for that and uh, find out how you can, uh, yes, become more carbon literate. It is a great thing to do, and I can speak from personal experience. So um, thank you again, Emma, and uh, maybe oh, two and a half years' time. No. More recently than that, we'll catch up again and we'll give people these Hope steps so. of sustainability part three. Lovely. I'll, I'll look forward to it. Good to see you.